0: Hi everyone, welcome to Identity Three, a podcast about decentralized identity. Uh, my name's Nick Lambert. I'm the CEO of Doc Labs. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Mark Minnie, who is the CEO of Overhead. Thanks for for hopping on with us, Mark. Really appreciate your time.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Nick.
0: No problem. And also, we have uh, Francisco, who is head of content at Doc, uh, on the on the uh, on the podcast as well. So thanks for jumping on, Francisco. Hi Nick. Hi Mark. Hi everyone. Yeah. So we'll get straight into it. So um, so Doc has been working um, kind of um, alongside Mark in, in kind of different forms for, for a short time now, um, and we thought it'd be great to bring Mark on uh, to Identity Three, um, really to talk about his experience and. Uh, how they see uh, the world of, of identity. Um, so Mark, maybe you can kick us off. Um, can you let us know what, from your perspective, what is self-sovereign identity?
1: Yeah, uh, well, to me, it's it's more like a, a statement or a, a movement than, than there's actually a definition uh, around that. Um, for me, self-sovereign identity is being able as a person to, um, let's see, um, edit or, or instantiate my own digital representative and even also uh, multiple digital representatives of myself because I have a working life, I have a private life, I have a sports life maybe and a party life. You don't know um, because there are several identities you can, you can have in the world. And for instance, for my professional life, I would like to have a digital representative of myself that focuses on my achievements or my portfolio or my reputation, uh, building out a a digital resume um, uh, as you will. So I think the most important part of the self-sovereignty of identity is being able to express yourself in a digital way that belongs to you and that you can uh, decide for yourself what kind of attributes, Are around that, that kind of digital identity that you want to have in that specific world or in these specific relations you want to have with towards other organizations, for instance. I want to have a different relationship with my wife than I have with my work. Um, And that, that you can, um, let's say, um, decide for yourself what kind of attributes are around your digital identity so it's more about attributes and the way you um, relate to other organizations or to other people than that um let's say for instance you um as an individual you get a a digital identity stamped or instantiated by your government i think that's not the same yeah. And for me, this this is the, the real part of, of self-sovereign identity that you as a person or at your, as yourself can instantiate your own digital representative.
0: I think that's a good point, because I think when um, you talk to people that are maybe not in the space about what identity is or digital identity is, it's the, the kind of common assumption seems to be that you have one. And that's all that you have because maybe that's what we've been used to um, in an offline sense. Um, But as you rightly point out, Mark, we all have um, many lives and uh, we live in basically contexts. Um, And so why should your identities not also fit in uh, with that paradigm as well? So yeah, that's a a really interesting kind of way to think about it as well. And historically, of course, identities typically being controlled by large organizations, whether they are governments or whether we're thinking about identity as identifiers issued by kind of large tech companies historically like Google and things like that, where they um, kind of grant you access to their data on, to your data on their systems. Um, So, you know, identifiers um, also exist in that context as well. And so we can start to think about how we can use a self-sovereign identity that the individual controls um, to access these systems as well. But yeah, no, definitely uh, agree with uh, what you're saying there and I very much liked your answer. Mark, I really liked your explanation on SSI. For someone who's never heard of SSI, what does it look like? in the everyday life? Let's say I have with me right now a digital identity based on self-sovereign identity principles. What does that look like and what can I do with it?
1: Yeah, as a matter of fact, we're doing a lot of projects already with that. So basically what what you carry around is your personal data wallet. Just like you have already a wallet on your phone like Apple Pay or Google Pay. About tickets is are already in your wallet. If you if you an Eventbrite ticket, you can uh, uh, you can save in your wallet uh, at your smartphone. Basically, it's the same procedure. You help, you hold a personal data wallet, and what that means is that you collect your verifiable credentials. So credentials being issued to you by another organization or by your friends could be uh, equally valid. You, ha- you hold that in your phone. And once you are going to uh, be involved in sort- some sort of an application process or some sort of a uh, an entry process, you can just show your, um, um, uh, your personal data wallet. You can scan a QR code from the website of the organization that wants some information from you. And with that uh, scan, uh, this organization wants from you a certain type of verifiable credential in order to check if you're eligible uh, of ent- entry- en- entering the process or entering, the uh, uh, let's say, the, uh, the, uh, 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 basically an entry ticket, it would be. So the whole idea is that by scanning this, this QR code in your same, s- same personal data wallet on your phone, there is uh, some sort of message popping up is saying, this organization wants this credential from your wallet. Are you willing to share this with that organization in order to be eligible for entering uh, this organization? And then you can, of course, deny that or allow it. And then if you allow it, then this credential is being transferred to the organizational website. This website Is checking underneath to in the that's where we need the trust network for. So there's a backend system um, and uh, and saying that okay, once I have a link to uh, um, from this verifiable credential to my registry, I can see that this credential is being issued uh, according to my standards, according to this organization, to this government. Driver's license could also be a verifiable credential. And I can verify that this, this credential is still valid and it's issued by the right party. So uh, uh, on the basis of that matter, I can, you know, give, uh, give this person entrance. So the checking process is all in the back end uh, to the uh, original issuing party and see if it's still valid. So what's important here is that of course, you hold these uh, credentials in your wallet, but a credential can be revoked by the organization that has been issued this in the first place. So, for instance, also uh, a diploma credential for your in your career wallet uh, could be uh, set invalid from uh, the original issuing party if there um, has been some sort of a fraud uh, uh, being experienced or something like that. So... The idea is a credential is not really in your position. It's really being issued to you for being eligible for something in the future. And I think that's, that's an
0: interesting point. Yeah, I th- sorry, Mark, I was going to say, I mean, it's yeah. what you described there's excellent. And I think what it gets you is trying to, I think, for, for this technology to really achieve mainstream adoption, it needs to be as easy to use as the tools that we're all used to using today like we mentioned phones and Apple pay and things of that nature and having these digital wallets it needs to be a similar experience but behind the scenes um, the, the kind of back end of the technology exists that we can actually trust uh, the data you know because there's digi- digitally signed every step of the way
1: yeah.
0: um, so I think that's going to be key to, to get an adoption um, but yeah, yeah that's ex- a- ex-
1: Yeah, it's exactly what you're saying, Nick. So this this is why I'm trying to build out a trust network rather than focusing on getting a a lot of credentials in your wallet because it really starts by trusting uh, the issuing parties.
0: Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. When we first got to Know Overhead, you guys were not too far after having won the very prestigious Odyssey Momentum hackathon. And... uh, (laughs) Uh, which is a great achievement. I mean, still kind of uh, seems to have gone quite metaversy uh, in the last few years, uh, I guess, forced to maybe by COVID pandemics and things like that. But um, you had a really, really interesting entry, which is uh, Conscious Cities Driving Adoption of Living Labs. Can you tell us a little bit more about that project, please?
1: Yeah, as we we, um, interpreted the project um, at first sight, I was thinking about, okay, conscious cities. What means conscious to you? Uh, it's, it's about the city of The Hague. I'm not living far from The Hague, so I know the city quite well. And uh, what they want to achieve is they want to um, get more citizens involved in the policy mating, making of the city uh, itself. It's quite a hard job to do. And um, so the consciousness of the city is really dependent on their citizens or inhabitants doing stuff and monitoring this kind of stuff. And instead of, you know, focusing on, um, let's say, the bad part of, 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 of being a conscious city is that you can, you know, uh, keep a tap on all your inhabitants or, uh, um, um, you know, build some sort of surveillance system on it. Because as a matter of fact, the other winner of, uh, of the other track of Conscious City had that kind of stuff in it, like you know, uh, putting cameras everywhere and uh, seeing how the um, how the uh, uh, the crowd is behaving. We took a different perspective on uh, what we called crowd control, and even crowd control itself is, of course, suspect in its um, in its own sense, um, because nobody wants to be controlled, and especially not by governments, at least in our part of Europe or in our part of the world, I would say. Um, So we took the perspective of, okay, uh, what does consciousness mean from a decentralized perspective, from a a citizen's perspective? How do um, I, as an individual, can contribute to the consciousness of the city of The Hague? And we uh, we approached the project by uh, doing some sort of a simulation of the beachfront of The Hague. That's the... uh, the neighborhood of, or we, we call it a village or a, a city, a part of the city. Uh, it's called Scheveningen. It's a famous uh, beach resort uh, of The Hague or of the Netherlands itself. And um, we said, okay, there are lots of activities uh, running around. So maybe we can simulate some sort of a, um, a sort of uh, um, a pleasure dome, pleasure park. Uh, and see how people will, would behave in a sense that we can control the amount of crowdiness uh, in uh, certain spots. So what we, uh, what we did is we simulated uh, the environment by making use of a, uh, um, uh, what was it called, the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the Roller Coaster Tycoon 2 yeah. game so we we made a whole uh we had quite a quite a, a great ux uh, uh, uh guy uh, um in our in our team and so we would like to simulate uh what would happen if you um uh, can perform crowd control by incentivizing people individually by uh, giving out tokens because we are all of course blockchain oriented yeah and maybe do some sort of a combination of verifiable credential, the self-sovereignty of, of identity and uh, and tokens. Uh, for instance, if there is one place that is very crowded, then you can maybe you know um, um, incentivize people to go away from that spot by raising prices, raising ticket prices for that part of it. Crowd control is uh, does have a very negative connotation uh because it's you know it's uh, um, uh, related to surveillance state uh, that kind of stuff. but the nice thing is uh, if you want to be conscious as a city and uh, still want to you know uh, have your citizens uh, um, not being watched upon um, you need to have some some kind of a solution that your citizens are are willing to, give you some information in order to be conscious. And then you need to have some kind of an incentive system in place that uh, citizens are freely willing to share information with you. And I think the aspect of self-sovereign identity is really laying a base for that uh, because it's dependent on the citizens what they want to share with you. And if you, uh, for instance, every process or everything Every transaction-related process you can think of, if you ask permission uh, from your citizen, okay, can I have this this piece of information for you? Because then I can improve my service to you. I think citizens are willing to give uh, to give that to you, as long as they know that what you are using it for. And uh, the the main part of self sovereignty is about. Letting the user or the citizen decide if they want to share that with you or not. And uh, this this seems like, okay, then um, um, I don't have enough information from uh, my citizens, but um, if you think this through, then um, I once said, said this at, at some sort of a webinar or some sort of a presentation I held for privacy officers. In, uh, in the city of Amsterdam, so the, the, uh, a big city. And I, I think they, they, they got the point, uh, once I said, if you try to focus not on the raw information you get from citizens, but on the processes uh, uh, you, um, you provide to your citizens and a pinpoint on the transaction aspects of that process, so not the content of the process itself or the raw information you collect but the uh, moment that a citizens interact with you you get lot lots of um interesting and vi- uh, valuable information from that as well so not focusing on the content of the process but more on the phases of the process or the phase transitions of the process okay a citizen is applying for this uh, a citizen uh, has being uh, um is being eligible I issued a credential to that, uh, a certain credential. So being anonymous as a citizen is, is great by uh, 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 privacy, uh, is a great privacy preserving aspect. So as, a, as an organization or as a municipality, you shouldn't focus on keeping all that information from the ciz- citizens with you because you have all sorts of risks involved like, you know, data leakage, etc., uh, it's also not allowed uh, by gdpr standards here in europe but instead focus on the transactional information i think you get much richer information which is also privacy preserving so basically this is my uh, my two cents uh, on that matter
0: could you re- uh, could you also maybe just cuz we talked a little bit about self-sovereign identity at the start mark and, and you mentioned they're kind of starting to um add in uh, tokens and or kind of as verifiable credentials um, would you be kind enough just to give a very quick uh, uh, kind of 101 explainer as to what um, verifiable credentials are if um, some of our listeners haven't uh, haven't caught up in that yet
1: yeah sure uh, so a verifiable credential is uh, as you say a credential that can be verified and what is a credential a credential is a kind of claim or a statement that some other guy or organizations is saying about you So that's that's the main part what i think is uh, is uh what's the um the value is in a verifiable credential because i can say to uh to you nick okay i can verify that nick is a is a is a great guy something like that be but who am i to say that uh nick is a great guy it's more important that some sort of an organization or uh, some sort of reputationable organization or guy will say that, hey, Nick is a great guy. So this is something about trust, about reputation, about other people are saying about you. So uh, what that means is that um, if you can get some sort of a credential from the city of The Hague that I'm eligible to go somewhere or to participate in some sort of uh, a project that improves the neighborhood, Then this credential is has has a certain value because of that organization, like the city of the Hague is saying about me that the value is in the issuing party, as, uh, as you would say. So the issuing party, city of the Hague is giving me a credential that makes me eligible to participate in certain things. And because the city of The Hague is saying that about me, some other guy or some other organization that is, um, let's say, is uh, uh, looking at that credential and say, okay, who are you to be eligible for that? I can show that. And I say the city of The Hague says that I am eligible for it. And that other party, which we could we, we can call the verifier, will, tr- will have trust in uh, the city of The Hague having issued that credential to me. So the trust is not coming from me. So the verifier is not trusting me. The verifier is trusting the city of The Hague that uh, they say something about me for being eligible for that. Yeah. And okay. basically, this is the triangle of issuing party, holder, the holder of the credential and the verifier of the credential. Not necessarily trusting me, but really trusting the issuer for that credential.
0: Yeah. And and thanks for that. And I think one of the interesting things I found about the um, the Conscious Cities um, project was the governance aspect, which was, uh, and I think like we can maybe, Francisco, we can maybe put in the kind of show notes or whatever, a link to uh, the overhead video. I think that would be really good context for kind of people that are listening along. But I think that um, the governance aspect which is highlighted in the video whereby if if local people who want to renovate a theatre or you know knock a building down and build something else they are able to um, within the project basically vote on which of these projects um, should the, the public money for example be spent in and I think um, as kind of acting as a uh, kind of lubricant for enabling um, citizens to take part in kind of governance and, and how their local area is run is extremely powerful.
1: Yeah, exactly. And one of the spin-offs spin-offs uh, of winning uh, this track is uh, that we actually did a really small pilot with the city of The Hague in a participatory budgeting uh, kind of project. So for instance, uh, if you want to have something improved in your neighborhood, getting some playground built or some plants or, or trees uh, uh, grown, then uh, you can have a verifiable credential uh, from the city of The Hague stating that you're an inhabitant of that neighborhood and so that you're eligible to vote on these kinds of plans being held in your neighborhood. Basically, that was the, the project and it was quite successful, even on a small scale. So this is, I think, the new way to go if you want to have some sort of a conscious city or participatory city, or we call it, I think, social innovation, uh, in order for your citizens to be part of the governance of your city.
0: Yeah, and I think the great thing about that, and we talk about voting as well, is that you know if you're then this this can be entirely built into the system. So we're not talking about voting from a perspective of. Dragging yourself down to a polling station, taking time off work, and all the stuff that voting can sometimes entail. We're talking about you know kind of voting online using tokens um, as as you know to represent proof of um, proof of you as a person, proof of your right to vote, and basically being able to do everything online uh, without leaving your desk, even um, which I think is really really powerful and amazingly all this technology um, exists today. And is being used to run many kind of blockchain ecosystems. Um, I think the weird thing about it is that everyone sometimes wants um, the right to vote, uh, the right to um, help run, like uh, whether it's uh, you know blockchains or things like that. But what we see sometimes uh, online is the turnout um, for voting is is quite low, which is a shame. But I think that. But I think for for more kind of social and personal issues, I think we'd certainly see uh, that improve significantly. Um, So, um, and I think um, what other kind of um, SSI, um, so self sovereign identity or verifiable credentials, um, use cases are overhead interested in? Uh, You've gone, you know, really explained. Um, uh, the Conscious Cities one well. What, what others are you looking at as well, Mark, alongside that?
1: Yeah, actually, there are uh, uh, two um, uh, well lines, lines of use cases I'm currently investigating because our background is, is, is government. Uh, so we have a lot of uh, um, interesting parties in government space. Uh, one of them is uh, the Dutch um, uh, Education Execution Agency, that's responsible for registering diplomas, uh, diploma certificates of official Dutch, uh, but also international um, schools and uh, universities. Um, and um, the that, main use wow. case, I Is that,
0: sorry, just to interrupt, is that, is that then for students? So they would um, reach some uh, like ac- academic attainment and then the university would then issue the, the whatever credential they attained out um using a verifiable credential
1: yeah this is currently what i uh, well i investigated this part uh, uh already 4 years ago when i was first entering the space of uh of uh, self-sovereign identity uh we, actually we 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 made quite a quite an impact uh, with that um and i was manager of the innovation lab over there and we made quite an impact with okay this use case so um um I think I think we have to expand on that. And uh I also wrote an article on that on Medium. It's called uh, uh decentralized micro-credentialing. So what, what do I mean by that? Is micro-credentialing is about not just okay, you register your diploma after six years of school or university or something like that, and then you have a credential stating that you earned a diploma. What you see right now and even also in, in you know, lots of people are freelancing now and uh, playing part in some sort of a gig economy, like you know, uh, going from gig to gig uh, and uh, uh, doing uh, all kinds of uh, studying uh, besides or or uh, or next to that. So um, what you see happening is that uh, um, lots of people, well, even my my uh, my boys, are just not even thinking about. Uh, Am I going to spend six years in school right now before I'm even going to work? No way. I'm going to work for myself or I'm going uh, to take freelancing. But still, of course, you need to have some sort of credentialing in order to, you know, uh, get eligible for doing such such a project. So this is where micro credentialing comes into uh, comes into play. Um, what I mean by that is you just, you know, you can enroll in some sort of a online course from um, uh, Udemy or Coursera or uh, what have you. You can earn uh, after three months or something, some sort of a um, uh, uh, software engineer introduction to software engineering or something like that. And you can earn after three years a credential for you know, uh, having passed that course and uh, getting, getting your certificate. And even that, with that certificate, you can, of course, apply for a job or uh, apply for search, some sort of a freelance gig. Uh, and I think we are seeing this more and more happening. So what I'm trying to investigate now is, okay, how can we, of course, I, I'm working in, in, with lots of governments and un, uh, municipalities And uh, execution agencies, government bodies um, uh, next to central government to build out a career wallet for people that are, you know, in the uh, in the social benefit spheres that are not not uh, that they don't have a university diploma. They don't have higher education, but they do have skills. So we are going to build out some sort of a skills passport uh, based on verifiable credentials by, you know, uptaking a course for three months, being a welder, being a, a carpenter, that kind of skills we really need right now because our, our, our labor market is really, you know, grinding to a halt because a lot of people are uh, actually are uh, retiring right now. So we really have quite a lot of pressure on the labor market right now. And I think one way to, you know, um, uh, come to a solution for that is building out digital resumes, which consist of smaller verifiable credentials or micro credentialing. So this is one line of inquiry. And the other line is, has more to do with um, supply chains of governments because that's, you know, it sounds a bit like a, a, a contradictory um, Do governments have supply chains? Yes, they do. Because you have, you want to apply for some sort of a service or you want to apply for some sort of a social benefit uh, in labor and income uh, uh, spheres or social benefit spheres, social welfare, I should say. And these processes can take up quite a lot of time because you know um, um, civil servants need to, uh, or government uh, representatives, need to check up a lot of things, a lot of paperwork. Are you eligible for this? Are you eligible for that? Uh, what kind of income do you have right now? What kind of um, dynamics are in your income right now? And um, I think that uh, um, um, verifiable credentials uh, would come in handy uh, if you um, look at it from the um, privacy perspective. So, uh, what I, what do I mean by that? Is by using a verifiable credential as a ticketing system that you can receive a ticket ticket. It's a bit like uh, what you have in uh, um, during the 80s, the the Kanban methods uh, from uh, Toyota, from the Japanese industries, that you can uh, um, hand out a a verifiable credential once you apply for for a certain uh, service, and that verifiable credential can give you access to the next phase of the process, for instance. And then you can, as an issuer, so the municipality of the government agency can issue you some sort of a dynamic verifiable credential that you can, the status you can update each time you can, you know, move on into the process. And that's a bit of a supply chain uh, management uh, uh, kind of perspective that we, uh, I think in the the, uh, decentralized work, we want to. Uh, somehow maybe uh, solve with uh, NFTs but yeah. as you, you rightly say so Nick is an NFT should be tradable and this is something you can't trade it's, it's belonging to you you are the participant in this process and this credential this ticket is belonging to you and you only have to update your ticket uh, once you progress in every phase of the application and I think This will save us a huge amount of paperwork, a huge amount of time and a huge amount of, um, let's say, uh, control work. Yeah. And I think this is a real huge business case for government agencies right now.
0: Yeah, very interesting. And and going back to your point on on micro-credentialing as well, I mean, I think can't remember the exact figures, it's something like, you know, 80% of us, um, go, you know, they go to university or college or some kind of further education, the, the job or the occupation that we move into, in 80% of cases, it's entirely different than what we studied. And I think like the notion that we would go off and we have one career and we go and we study that thing for four, five, six years, whatever it is. And then that, that's, that, that's the entirety of, of what we work on um, for the rest of our lives is, you know, that really very rarely happens. So I think having something like micro-credentialing that allows, um, you know, particularly young people as well, like to dip their toe in the water to understand, is this something that I want to spend a large chunk of my life doing? Um, it would give them that opportunity. Uh, but also for, you know, as, you know, uh, I mean, I'm not quite a spring chicken anymore but like a, and i see among some of my friends who are maybe kind of almost like reskilling uh, and, and wanting to do different things because they've done the same thing for for 20 years or so um you know micro micro credentialing gives them that benefit as well where they can go and and do something not necessarily for a, a a really long period of time but they can come away with some kind of um academic achievement that's uh, demonstrable that they can give to a future employer Um, and that future employer can trust uh, that credential because of who issued it, like you said in your other example. So uh, yeah, really interesting to hear uh, your thoughts there. And I think micro-credentialing is going to be um, increasingly used as a a kind of phrase and a buzzword moving forward. And of course the supply chain um, use case is really interesting. And sometimes when you hear about supply chain being used with verifiable credentials, um, it's often within the kind of logistics um, side of things as well where it can protect like high value goods or things like pharmaceuticals where um, the exporter or the ultimate recipient um, of the shipment can know who you know where the where the goods were manufactured, um, you know what what was the country of origin and um, you know you know which logistics firms were involved in moving that shipment who and they each um, digitally sign, the credential and each shipment will have its own credential. And with each of the um, the kind of spokes in the supply chain, each signing off, um, when the, the recipient gets that, they can very quickly understand exactly where that shipment's been, where it was made and who's handled it. So so that's another really good use case for it as well. But uh, yeah, definitely kind of use in, um, uh, on the social side, like you mentioned, is super useful as well. Um obviously uh, overhead and, and doc started working together and um, wh- when uh, y- you started using uh, doc's technology um can you let us know a little bit about how you use uh, doc uh, today mark Yeah
1: um as i mentioned i i well I think I started. Uh, I started out uh, investigating blockchain uh, solutions. Uh, yeah, I think from from 2016 on, and I saw uh, all kinds of uh, um, uh, use cases for blockchain happening. And it's really not, not It's it's not really taking off because it's it's quite complex, as a matter of fact. Um, and you have um, yeah quite a quite a lot of uh, uh, technical stuff to, to handle so for uh, most of the people it's not not ripe yet to use so what i was looking uh, uh, for was back in the in 2018 when i was working with the dutch execution uh, education execution agency was okay are there simple tools to use to you know to hide all this complexity of Uh, private keys, uh, uh, um, uh, consensus uh, mechanisms, that kind of stuff. But really, you know, can I trust uh, what I can show you? And uh, is that digital verified or something like that? So I came across uh, uh, at the time Uport. Uh, Uport is an uh, uh, um, Ethereum-based wallet, which holds uh, some kind of uh, uh, digital credential. Uh, It's... Yeah, it's it's a self-sovereign identity solution. I also looked at uh, at other solutions like um, sovereign and uh, that kind of stuff. And um, I thought, well, I think you Uport is quite user friendly. I'm not sure what it's. Uh, I think it's rebranded right now. But you you also want to have some sort of a handle on uh, okay, how does the whole backend of this 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 uh, uh, this framework? Uh, um, uh is 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 being handled and um well uh, ethereum is on a public blockchain it's not that not that fast it's also the gas costs are quite high and so gas is of course what you what you need to pay in order to get some sort of an algorithm at the back end uh, uh, doing work for you calling uh, calling out some sort of smart contract uh, for you so I was looking at, 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 uh, at other kinds of architectures or solutions uh, uh, for our self-sovereign identity uh, um, use cases. And I think uh, one of my team members came across Doc uh, and he said, yeah, this is a solution that is really uh, quite easy to follow, uh, quite easy to understand. It's also built on a, a, a modern chain. Uh, it's on a substrate talkable chain. And it's proof of stake, which is for us a very important uh, property of blockchains because um, Bitcoin, Ethereum are proof of work, not that uh, um, uh, quite uh, uh, resource-intensive. And uh, proof of stake is a better model. And also modern modern blockchain, higher transaction throughput, uh, that kind of properties, which are very interesting. On top of that, uh, I was investigating Talk uh, once. Uh, uh, well, my team members said, okay, we have to really uh, look into that. Uh, and I started, I noticed that how um, your, uh, the way you build up your, uh, you build out your API, by with communicating to the blockchain, to the, to the backend is really, really straightforward, more straightforward than other solutions I, I came across. So this is why uh, where our, um, uh, where we put our money on uh, okay let's go go ahead with doc uh, I think we also run a validator or two uh, with your uh, oh, that's right within yes, your ecosystem that's right. and what, and and on the other hand we still have clients that are really reluctant to use public blockchains and it's really easy you know to start out with doc on your private blockchain on as you will on a consortium chain if you you know run a few notes with uh, uh, with organizations you trust, and especially for government this could be uh, uh, a selling point. Um, so this is why we use two kinds of uh, um, flavors, as you would say. Um, we use a private chain for our, uh, uh, our government projects or our government pilots. And we can, of course, use the public chain for uh, organizations that are more willing to, you know, uh, um, Get to get uh, get the scale and get the um, uh, get the scalability uh, get the uh, um, uh, uh, the scale they need uh, um, as yeah, a matter kind of, of
0: efficiencies, fact. Yeah, that you would get. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think that shows the versatility of blockchain. It's not one blockchain to rule them all. There's lots of different flavors, like you say. I also wonder, and, and kind of hearing um, you kind of talk through some of the the challenges and uh, Uh, some of the use cases where it's often the technology exists quite early on um, as we find today like everything that that we would require for conscious cities is in play today and quite often it's needing the kind of people to catch up and the processes and the legislation to catch up with the technology which is always just charging ahead Um, so I, I don't know if there's something we can do to kind of shorten that gap but I suppose that's something that, that impacts all industries, um, but yeah, I mean, I really appreciate you jumping on, uh, Mark, and, and taking us through uh, what self-sovereign identity is, um, how you're applying verifiable credentials, and and the types of industries and use cases that you're looking at uh, kind of moving forward. So, so thank you very much for your time. I don't know if you guys have any more points or questions before we wrap up. No, I think it was fantastic. Uh, I learned a lot. Thank you very much to both of you. Okay. Thanks, yeah and
1: I, and I really think that the use cases are endless. Uh, once you uh, uh, get your uh, get your head around uh, um, uh, all the all the stuff that we check today by using paperwork, by using uh, all kinds of stuff, it takes up so much time. So uh, what I'm focusing uh, uh, on right now is building out some sort of a trust network. So organizations building out nodes or maybe using nodes that they trust in order to, you know, get this network up and running because the value in the credential, as I said in the beginning, is lying in the trust of the issuing party. So if we have lots of issuing parties... And we can build out that from from a government perspective from within a municipality, from within central government or something like that. You know, build that network out to other parties willing to join that trust network because then we can trust each other's credentials and then we can speed up a lot of checking processes.
0: Yeah. here, here, long. And I hope we get to that point very soon. But uh, thanks again for jumping on, Mark. And thanks, Francisco. Catch you guys in the next one.